from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, June 29th. The Supreme Court issued three opinions this morning. They included the big affirmative action cases brought against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. So we are joined now again by our June court watcher, Ellie Mastal, the justice correspondent for The Nation and host of their podcast, Contempt of Court, with Ellie Mastal and author of the book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, now out in paperback. Hey, Ellie, welcome back. Those maniacs, Brian. They blew it up. God damn them all to hell. They blew it up. Did they blow up affirmative action? There is some restraining language there, mitigating language, nuanced language. What to your eye did they do? No, that's just for the press releases, Brian. Like they're, they're, the Roberts is arguing that um, universities can still look at the race of an applicant if the applicant makes it, you know, uh, uh, makes it an issue in their, uh, you know, college admissions essays or what have you, but just understand the incongruity of this, right? Robert says that diversity is a goal that universities can care about, but he's calling unconstitutional the policies through which universities care about diversity, right? So what he's doing is that he's declaring affirmative action unconstitutional, but he's trying to throw people a bone so that people don't protest at his house. Like that's all that is. Um, he's he's taking away the policy, but leaving I don't know the idea, the soupçon that perhaps if um, a student happens to be black and is like, "Yo, that was hard," um, that universities don't have to ignore it. And just to put a finer point on it, he, he has to say that because the alternative is unenforceable, right? The alternative of Students can't say that they're black in an essay. And if they do, colleges, admissions councils have to, you know, memory wipe that information from their brains. Um, that's an unenforceable rule. So that's why he's saying it. But, you know, in 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 all in, for all intents and purposes, he has banned affirmative action as unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. Ellie, um Make the distinction, if there is a distinction, between these two cases. One was brought against a private university, Harvard, and the University of North Carolina, uh, a public one. Were they combined for the opinions or were there differences? And does the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, which the majority said was violated by these affirmative action programs, does it apply in the same way to a public and a private university? Again, for all intents and purposes, yes. That's why they combine the cases. They wanted one case for a private school and one case for a public school, so there wouldn't be any kind of legal confusion uh, between what the court was banning. But in practical effect, it's going to be the same thing. However, the fact that they're treating both of these schools as exactly the same is another kind of indication or canary in the coal mine to just how much this decision was policy driven as opposed to legally and factually driven because Harvard and UNC have two very different admissions policies and two very different ways of achieving diversity through their admissions policies. I have argued in the past, Brian, that I think Harvard's admissions policy is quite bad and quite discriminatory towards AAPI students. That discrimination has nothing to do with affirmative action. Uh, and that's the conservative problem there. Um, the, the, the remedy that conservatives suggest does nothing to stop 
what I believe is the racist submissive policies of Harvard University. The conservatives just overlooked that. UNC has a completely different policy. If you look at the facts on the ground, um, uh, Asian American AAPI enrollment in, in universities and UNC is higher than black enrollment in, at UNC. It's easier to get into school at UNC if you're AAPI than it is if you're black. So again, the factual argument against UNC just doesn't even hold water. But again, the conservatives aren't concerned with facts or law. They're concerned with ending the policy, and that's what they did. Let me take a phone call. Our lines are full. You may not be surprised by that. Abby in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC with Ellie Mistal. Hi, Abby. Hi, good morning. How you doing? Could right. you please explain why it's not discrimination? If I'm a white guy and I can't get in because you give preference to a black guy, if it was the other way around, that would be discrimination. Just explain succinctly why it's not discrimination. Well, because it's not that you can't get in. Of course you can get in. If you're a white guy and you have good scores and good grades, you can absolutely get in to school. There's no, there, you see, you're acting like it's a zero-sum game. Like there's one spot and 18 people are fighting for it and only the black people get, no, that's not at all how it happens. You can, of course, get in to school regardless of your race, color, or, or creed. What affirmative action does is that it allows the universities to look at their class as a whole, all right? So we've got, and you think about it, universities do this all the time, right? We, the universities will say, okay, we've got, you know, 18 kids from New York. We should probably get one kid from Iowa in there, right? And so if you're kind of choosing between kind of the 19th kid from New York or the first kid from Iowa, maybe you give the kid from Iowa a shot because you don't have a lot of people from Iowa in your class already, right? Nobody seems to have a problem with that. The Supreme Court certainly doesn't have a problem with that. We see this all the time with gender admissions, right? If you have a class that's like 60, 40 men, historically, white women have been the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action when schools say, you know what, we don't want a sausage fest. And so we're going to throw in some women, right? Hmm. Right now, if you look at the elite universities, they're giving that bump to male applicants because right. in the modern context, it's men whose grades and test scores and standardized tests, whatever, haven't kept pace with women, right? So now, if you're looking at a class that would otherwise be 60, 40 women, you're like, you know what? We're going to throw in some other, some extra guys here to make sure the class balances out. That's all affirmative action is. And what the Supreme Court And the court, court is, is saying all of those other things to get somebody in from the Midwest when there's nobody in the mix, to get somebody uh, in to have a better gender balance is okay, only not race? Only race is the thing that they can't look at. So the schools can look at gender, geography, wealth. They can look at legacy admissions. They can look at athletic accomplishments. They can look at whether or not you're good at chess. They can look at whether or not you're good at playing the piano. But they can't look at whether or not you're a minority. That's that is the incongruity and the hypocrisy of today's Supreme Court ruling. Joan in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Joan. Oh, I was wondering if this filters down into something into uh, city and state issues. For example, uh, Stuyvesant High School and Bronx High School of Science, are they affected by this? Well, of course, they uh, don't have affirmative action. They have uh, a single uh, criteria, which is a high-stakes test. So they don't have anything like that right now. Uh, but I guess by implication, Joan is asking if they wanted to abolish 
that single high ta- high stakes test methodology as a lot of people want them to do, how would they be restricted at the high school level? Each school, whether it's a graduate school, college, or high school, has its own different admissions policies, right? Its own different admissions programs. All the court is saying is that an admissions program that emphasizes diversity, right? emphasizes racial and ethnic diversity as part of its factors for building its class, that is what is unconstitutional, right? And so, again, when you look at how this is going to be enforced, we have examples from the state of California, which outlawed affirmative action 25 years ago, in terms of what's likely to happen, right? Because colleges and universities will still want diverse class, uh, uh, class matriculation, because it's better. It's better from an educational standpoint, according to them. So they will still do whatever they can to increase the diversity of their classes. The Supreme Court is simply saying that that the specific policy of affirmative action cannot be used for that. And it can't be used for, you know, the old school uh, uh, reason for affirmative action, um, which is, you know, racially ameliorative of, you know, to overcome the histories and centuries and generations of racial segregation and oppression. That rationale has been kicked out by the Supreme Court. The vote, by the way, which I don't think I mentioned yet, was along the lines you might expect, six to three with Justice Roberts writing for the conservative majority and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan and Jackson in dissent. Justice Jackson was recused in the Harvard case, uh, but she still gets to, because she was involved in it earlier, but she still gets to weigh in in a dissent. And I noted uh, earlier, Ellie, a tweet highlighting this from Justice Jackson's dissent, quote, with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces, quote, colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Did you want to expound on that? Or do you have any other lines from the dissents uh, or the majority opinion that jumped out at you? Yeah, but let's let's start there. Um, um, First of all, Justice Jackson is able to dissent because while she was recused from the Harvard case, she wasn't recused from the UNC case. And they decided those two cases together. So Justice Jackson gets her say. What the, the, the legal kind of nutty issue is, is whether or not the 14th Amendment should be colorblind, right? Whether or not the Equal Protection Clause means equal protection for everybody, regardless of race, color, or creed, and we can't even know what the race, color, or creed is of the people, right? That's that's the argument from the conservatives. And Ketanji Brown-Jackson is saying, well, clearly not. And she's clearly right, because the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War specifically to redress racism in this country. In fact, the original authors of the 14th Amendment passed it, the congressional authors of it passed it, because they wanted to enact uh, uh, an 1866 Civil Rights Act, which included, wait for it, affirmative action in the Reconstruction South. And they understood that they could only do that law, they could only have their 1866 Civil Rights Act if they had the cover of the 14th Amendment. So from the very jump, the 14th Amendment was written to promulgate 
racial redress. And it was used by its originalist authors to advance policies like affirmative action. And that is what Kataji Brown Jackson is is talking about there. And that is what the conservative majority simply ignores. And Roberts in particular has a history of doing this particular kind of obliviousness. I say in my article in The Nation that John Roberts is the guy who wants to hang a mission accomplished banner declaring victory over racism mm. and then use that banner to immediately stop any attempt to combat racism in America. And he mm. didn't just do it in this case. He's done it before in 2012 in Shelby County v. Holder, where he gutted the Voting Rights Act basically on the argument that the Voting Rights Act has been successful. The South is no longer racist. And so they no longer should have to pre-clear their voting changes um, with the Department of Justice. We see how that's worked out in the South in the former Confederacy since 2012, haven't we? Right. So Roberts is trying to do this kind of obliviousness that uh, Kataji Brown accuses him for on purpose. It's his kind of essential logical flaw. Though he did in the other case that was decided recently um, allow the federal government to declare redistricting racist after the fact, even though he didn't allow them to require preclearance anymore. That's something, right? Exactly. Well, that's 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 surprising. And I do think that it's part part of the reason why. Because remember, I, when I came on to talk about this, uh, about that case uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was shocked that Roberts did that. He mm -hmm. he usually every other time in his career, he has voted against the Voting Rights Act. This is the one time where he kind of tried to affirm it. And I anticipated then that it was because this affirmative action decision was coming. Right. Like Roberts is a political animal of the highest degree. He understands how the court is talked about in the press. He wants good press and he wants exactly that counter argument to be made while people are criticizing his affirmative action decision. Raj in Queens, you're on WNYC. Hello, Raj. Hi, yeah, um, thanks for addressing this. I mean, I got the news alert and I just was pissed, angry, uh, even though, you know, this was sort of anticipated. I, I'm a professor in a large-ish Catholic university in Queens um, and work on these kinds of issues in ethnic studies and critical race studies. And I come from a very sort of upper-middle-class South Asian background. My entire community, um, no, I shouldn't say that, a lot of people in my community have these kinds of conversations where we think, um, you know, we're at risk of not getting in. We are losing out because of affirmative action is helping those other sort of less deserving, less qualified minorities, blacks and, and Latinos and Latinas. Um, and it's a really frustrating thing. Just recently, a month ago, I had that kind of conversation where parents, South Asian, American, um, East Asian American, were having a conversation about how hard it is for us now because of affirmative action that we're sort of left out. And it was really frustrating to hear this kind of alliance with a white supremacist notion of what universities should be. Yep, that that is, and I, I wrote about this, uh, that is one of the reasons why affirmative action is, is down. And you even heard it from the first caller. There is the false perception, right, that it's a zero-sum game and that every time a black student gets into university, that is taking a spot from somebody else, as if, A, that was a spot that was, you know, owed to them or bequeathed to them or whatever, but that they're taking something from somebody else. And there is a lot of anger and frustration um, over that. 
it, it's wrong on two levels. One, as I already explained to the other caller, it's not that zero-sum game. If you are a really high-performing white student in New York, most likely your spot got took, if we're going to use that terminology, by a really high-performing white student in Iowa, right? That got took by a really high-performing white student from Vancouver. Like that, the, the first sort that colleges and universities do in their admissions, uh, uh, pro, uh, in their admissions class is a sort by geography, Right. And that's why people living, you know, students living on the coast and in high populated areas have a particularly uh, difficult time. There's a lot of people to compete with. Right? Can so geography, given the housing segregation in this country, be used effectively by schools as a surrogate for race? Because I think even the plaintiffs in this case said um, they can still look for diversity by zip code. And we know many progressives will say, well, the zip code that you're born into will do more to determine your fate as an adult uh, than a lot of other factors. And so we know what the mostly black and Latino zip codes are in New York City, for example, and what the mostly white, et cetera. So can that be used effectively if colleges want to do it? Kind of, but understand, Brian, geography is really a proxy for white supremacy because non-white people are not evenly spread out throughout the country, right? Most black people live back where their ancestors were enslaved. Most black people in this country still live in the former Confederacy. Most AAPI students are clustered on the coasts, right? Like, so when you actually use a, ge a, a geographic sort, what you are doing is preferencing white students living in the middle of a country where not a lot of other people live. That's just what you're doing. If you're going to say that we're going to keep at least three spots in our university open for kids from Montana, that itself mm -hmm. is a form of affirmative action for white students because predominantly white people live in Montana. If you're going to say we're only going to have 18 kids from Long Island in our class, 18 sounds like a lot when Montana is only getting three. But if you're only going to have 18 kids from Long Island, you are pitting high achieving white students with high achieving uh, Jewish students with high achieving um, AAPI students with high achieving black students, all fighting over 18 spots. Right. So, like, again, right. this is how that's how that cookie crumbles. But, Brian, I just want to make the other point to, mm -hmm. to the caller's question. The, the other reason why this zero sum game of college admissions is just the wrong kind of starting point of an idea is that it's based on the idea that somehow we can tell the worth of a, of a prospective applicants based on a multiple choice standardized test score, which is just it's just anti-intellectual is what it is. And we have to leave it there for now, unfortunately. Clearly a lot more to come on this through the day on the station and more to come with Ellie almost certainly tomorrow when the court has scheduled its next opinion day. It hasn't ruled yet on the... Uh, uh, the student loan forgiveness program from President Biden, and everybody's waiting for that for today. Thank you, Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for the Nation, the author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Eyes Guide to the Constitution, now out in paperback. Ellie, thanks as always. Thanks so much for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, 
The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.